If you want to learn how to gain insights you can act on and solve business problems with data, all while building a data-driven culture at your organization, sign up for Pragmatic Institute's new course, Data Science for Business Leaders. Find out more at pragmaticinstitute.com data. Welcome to Data Chats, a podcast by Pragmatic Institute and the Data Incubator, where we tackle data topics and trends with experts, industry leaders, instructors, and alumni. I'm your host, Chris Richardson, and today I'm sitting down with Jeremy Adamson, author of Minding the Machines and a leader in AI and analytics strategy. Jeremy is a creative and driven analytics practitioner and has established new functions in many major Canadian and international organizations. I'm looking forward to pick your brain today, Jeremy. Thank you so much for being on here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. So maybe we can just start with a little bit of background for our Data Chats audience. Can you tell us a little bit about where you're coming from, maybe past experiences? Yeah, sounds good. So so my uh, professional background really is all over the place. My education is in civil engineering, focusing on transportation and, and project management. And I actually worked as an engineer for years doing traffic impact studies, doing safety assessments, design work. And then eventually I, I landed on a project with the government of Alberta where I was connecting collision prediction models with their capital planning system. So essentially creating a algorithmic way to allocate capital, addressing safety concerns, and then overlaying regional priorities. And this was a huge light bulb over my head moment. I, I was building data pipelines. I was building GLMs, connecting that to regionally adjusted costs. And then I got to travel the province trying to sell this newfangled approach. And that was you know, probably the first time I was involved in a data science type of project. And I, I, I was hooked. Within a year of that, I, I gave up on engineering. I Wow. took a role as a data analyst with an oil and gas company. I started an MBA and, and I've been in the field ever since then, really. And since then, I've, I've worked in progressively more senior roles at WestJet, which is a Canadian airline, a Manulife, and Insure. I worked at Deloitte as a management consultant. At the moment, I'm a lecturer at the University of New Brunswick, where I, I teach a strategy in their management school. And I'm also the VP of, of BI and analytics at Automotive Group in Eastern Canada and Texas. So really fortunate to have landed in a career that I love. Yeah. So just a little bit of experience you can share with us. Yeah. No, it's great. And especially that versatility. I wonder if before we get into minding the machines, which I want to ask you about, uh, maybe I'm curious if you could say how, your, how that experience in particular coming from engineering might shape the way that you look at data. I think engineering is all about being systematic, deconstructing a problem and architecting a very stable, defensible solution. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's helped me quite a bit, especially in the early days of, of data science and analytics as a practice, where there was an awful lot of, of perception of it being a purely technical function. And people would reach out with a request. They would technically uh, you know, do exactly what they're told pass it back over the line. And I, I think if I can say so while, while still being modest, I, I think my, my differentiator was that I could really break that down and put together a project plan, involve stakeholders and, and bridge that business and technical side. And, you know, that's been kind of the theme of my career, I would say, and engineering really helped with that. 
Yeah. And it sounds like, yeah, it's something that we hear from a lot of students who are, are learning and who are specializing in data science that the real trick, obviously, there's a lot of technical skills, I'm not downplaying that at all, but working with the stakeholders and sharing plans that can be effectively pursued and executed is probably the most challenging thing we hear from students who you know, are well-versed in data science. And then they realize like, yeah, talking to human beings who have, in some cases, strange or disparate concerns or, or ideas about a project can be one of the more challenging things. So yes, lots of stuff to talk about in terms of techniques and business strategy. But yeah, maybe you could say a little bit about minding the machines and what prompted it and, and give a little rundown. Yeah, absolutely. I had the good fortune, like I mentioned, I, I was part of the data and analytics journey for a lot of different companies. And, and what I was kind of surprised with was the more companies that I saw, it didn't matter if they were big or small, technically savvy, if they were, you know, technically and, and analytically very mature or driven by gut. Whenever they made an investment in data and analytics, it, it tended to backfire. They weren't getting the value out of it that they were expecting. Mm-hmm. And what I saw is if, if you look past all of the symptoms and you get to the root cause, it was, you know, like, like I mentioned, it was that connection between the practice and the business. And if you spoke with the practitioners, the, the data scientists, they would usually say, we don't have the tools to be successful. Data quality isn't great. They would have a lot of technical reasons. And if you just spoke to them, you would think, you know, that this is a, a technical issue with a technical solution. But if you speak to their stakeholders, they would say, these guys don't speak our language. They don't understand the business. There was a complete disconnect yep. there. And, and that's what I was hoping to accomplish with the book really is contribute in some small way to bridge in that gap and to help practitioners and especially leaders in the space to build a practice focused on creating value and not just on technical sophistication and not on the newest you know, technical approach. Yeah. I wonder, do you have any examples you could share of maybe ways that business strategies and the technologies didn't work well that you've seen or heard of, and then ways that you've seen them improve through certain techniques? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is that companies would read a Business Insider article, they would, you know, hear their peers talking about data science is the sexiest job of the 21st century, and you need this to uh, be competitive in the future. So like a shopping list, they say, well, we need a data science function. So they'll go out and they'll hire the most talented group of individuals they can get. They'll invest a ton of money. They'll start a cloud migration. They'll get all of this pre-work done. And then at the end of the year, they look at their P&L for the group and realize they lost a lot of money on this initiative. And they'll say, what happened here? And to try to get some value out of this investment, they'll steer them towards reporting, they'll steer them towards things that they understand a little bit more. Hmm. So it, it, it's not fair for the people that are put in that position, because they're thrown out there with the mandate to just go and do data science. They don't have the relationships, they don't have the foundations in place. They don't have a seat at the table. There's, there's all of these softer elements that aren't in place for them to be successful. And then from the business perspective, they don't have the technical analytical foundation to be able to articulate what they need in in a way that it can be solved by this function. So again, right from the start, there's no connection between the functions. It's been stood up as though it's any other department without any understanding or, or aspirations for the group. So I think that's the main thing really is, you know, before you kick this off, what do you expect out of this team? What does success look like? 
getting all of those strategic foundations in place. Yeah. What have you seen as some of the ways that, you know, if you were consulting or if they were to redo it in a better way based on the situation you've just described, what are some of those steps that anyone listening who may be thinking about either hiring a data science team because maybe they just read that article and they're thinking of yeah. it, or maybe they've done that and they realize early on, like it's still early stages, that something is not set up right or there may be problems ahead. What do you encourage people to get out of that situation or to improve it in some way? I, I would advise everybody to not go for the, you know, hardcore ML engineers, the, you know, people coming direct out of the back rooms at Google, and, and they tend to go for these folks. And I'm, I'm not discounting what they're able to bring to a team. Like those people have amazing horsepower and it's awe-inspiring to see what they're able to do. But when you're early on in your journey, you need to go slow and, and you need to start with what you have, like go after those low hanging fruit. And for the most part, those aren't technically complex problems. A lot of those can be solved if you plug your nose with Excel and there's no shame in that. You need to start somewhere and you need to build credibility. You need to build excitement in the organization, analytical literacy, and, and you need to steer the culture of the organization towards a change positive attitude around uh, making data-driven decisions. And until that's in place, you can have, you know, the, the most gifted people on the payroll and you're not going to be able to extract value from them. So that's where I would start, I would say, is, is, you know, don't wait for data governance to bear fruit. Don't wait for your cloud migration to be complete. Even without a formal analytics team, you, you've probably got those sophisticated actors in the organization that everybody turns to when they have a technical problem whether it's someone that's, you know, hammering out a VBA script to automate things that are being done in Excel, one of, one of those gurus that everybody turns to, you know, start with that and plant seeds with that person, start to build a practice mentally as, as much as, as organizationally, and just start getting the seeds in place before you drop a 10-person team on top of IT and say, you know, start, start adding value. You, you need to start early and go slow, I would say. Yeah. And I think that it, it's interesting. That seems like, you know, advice from someone who's seen things happen, who is comfortable saying these kinds of things. But I also kind of imagine either a new grad from data science or someone from that's been poached from Google, let's say, and, you know, has all these amazing skills. And then maybe you might be worried that, okay, they go to this new organization and they can't simply show a spreadsheet or they can't simply pick that low hanging fruit. They need to do the most advanced AI or else they're not going to impress people. What would you say to those people who are in a new situation and, you know, it makes sense what you're saying, but they're also maybe a little apprehensive about, say, about doing basics? Yeah, that's, that's a, it's a hard one. And I definitely see where they're coming from. And, and to be honest, early on in my career, that's how I felt I added value was by doing the most complicated thing, showing my work, really blowing them out of the water and, you know, writing out the full formulas and then walking them through and, and showing, you know, guys, I, I know this stuff. You, you can trust me. Nobody cares at the end of the day. And, and that's kind of a harsh truth. When you get in front of stakeholders and you say, we use the coolest ensemble technique, there's a neural net in there, there there's XG boost. Uh, you start throwing buzzwords out there that, you know, people like us like to nerd out about and talk about. That just decreases trust. It means you can't explain this clearly. Stakeholders don't understand this. You, you need to focus always on business value and find the simplest possible way to get the point across. 
once you've established credibility, you can start to ramp up the sophistication. But if you start right there, you put people on a defensive footing and you really need to empathize with your stakeholders. They want to understand what's happening. They want a very clear connection between the model that you're doing and the business outcome. They want to know that you've considered all of the operational risks with what you're doing, that you understand the business, that you understand their motivations and their pain points. All of that stuff is much more important to these people than, you know, I've, I've used TensorFlow instead of a GLM. So I, I would always make it as simple as possible, explain it as simply as possible, and, you know, save all the, uh, all the math for the appendix. Just, you know, focus on the value and then the rest will take care of itself. Yeah. No, and I mean, that's great advice that we've, we hear all the time from experts and subject matter experts, right? And yet it's hard to put into practice, especially when you, when you have all these amazing skills and, yeah. uh, and you know, it, you want to show them off. You want to show that you're worth the money that they're paying you. And so, yeah, it's definitely an issue that we hear over and over again. I wonder if you have examples of maybe techniques or, or ways of presenting information. So as you said, don't show everyone, especially C-suite, the formula that you're using or the, the list of tools that you've used. They definitely don't care about that. Um, mm. But yeah, you mentioned the business value, the cause and effect, if you can show that kind of thing. What are some of the techniques that you might encourage people to do in order to be more effective communicators when they're working on a project? The biggest thing I would say is start mentally from a clean slate and, and don't look exactly at what the person is asking for. Because often they have that business outcome in mind, but they don't have the vernacular to be able to express that hmm. properly. And there's a common story. Everybody's heard it in, in some version of, you know, stakeholders coming up with a question that if you answer it exactly as it's presented, you're not getting them what they want. I came into a organization, I'll keep it anonymous, several years ago, and, and they had a very talented, very expensive team, and they were struggling to get value out of it. And what they tended to do is bring in more and more sophisticated people, more and more PhDs, more and more talent. And if I can you know, oversimplify what they were doing, they were receiving raw data around customer behavior, making recommendations on pricing for a project and sort of churning through this loop. And it ended up being an annual thing. And there was an idea that the purpose of this team was, you know, like I said, to do data science, take that data, make the best possible model, make sure it fits observed history, do a prediction and present. And, and it was that, you know, foundational myopic view of what the team was trying to achieve. They received the data. They thought our job is to just do data science, did the best model they could do, explain that to leadership. Leadership gets frustrated. The team becomes disengaged and, and the relationship tends to break down. And, and what I did in this example, and it's, it's not fancy by any stretch, it's, it's the very opposite of fancy, but looking at what the business wanted out of this function. And, and they didn't want the fanciest model. They didn't want the most predictive model. They just wanted to know today, is my pricing appropriate given recent data or, or do we need to adjust? So it's, it's not create a better model. It's, it's an ML ops problem. It's build those data pipelines, keep this as real time as possible, look at model drift. So rather than, you know, hyper-specialized, obscure models that you present every year, now you can look weekly, you can report uh, what the drift has been, just give them a thumbs up every week. And it, it gives a lot more confidence than having a team of PhDs hammering out these models every year. So I, I think that that works in, in almost every case. 
really zoom all the way out and, and ask yourself what the stakeholders looking for with this. And then quite often, the answer is a lot simpler than the assumptions you go into it with. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And yet it's like being simple, right? It's hard to put yeah. into practice, but it is something to aspire towards. I wonder if you've seen different ways of organizing. So you sort of mentioned how one company might get all the most expensive data scientists, assuming that that will be lead to the best outcome. But I wonder if you have insights into any kind of size or, or experience you have in organizations, but how data teams have been put together maybe more effectively than others. I know there's, I mean, for every organization, there's probably a structure you could think of. But strategically, if you're an organization, you're putting together or you're reassembling, perhaps you're thinking of shuffling things up. What are some effective ways to put together data teams? Yeah, there, there's a lot to that. And it, it depends a lot on the organization and, and on, on the culture, on their level of maturity. But, you know, I'll, I'll I'll say, first off, it is definitely not always a technical problem. And I've, I've said that a few times, but Bear's reiterating. I will start on that side. You, you definitely do need data to be successful. Some data, it's never going to be perfect. You, you can't wait for it to be. So, you know, I, I, I would say you need some foundations in place to be successful. But from there, I would focus mostly on establishing understanding of the current state. I think new leaders need to be out there. They need to be intentionally building relationships. And if if leaders aren't spending half their day in sales mode, I've you know I'd, I'd say that they're not getting it right. They're focusing way too much on on the nitty gritty. In terms of structure, I would say that the COE model tends to work best. You, you need that raw horsepower. You need those people that can do the hands on keyboard stuff. But unless you have that functional or that domain knowledge to be able to contextualize the solutions and to understand how to operationalize things, then there's going to be a breakdown on, on one, one side or the other. And sorry, so, CO, COE model, you said? Oh, sorry, center of excellence. Okay, yeah. So having a center of excellence where you, know, you have those technical foundations that are a shared resource in the organization as well as technical specialists throughout the company that can draw on them and, and partner with them to, mm. to get projects across the line, tends to be the best balance. There's cases where centralization is good and in highly structured organizations, places that are used to doing complicated cost accounting. And then for smaller startup organizations, one without a lot of maturity, completely decentralized is okay as well. Over the long run, you're going to run into technical debt issues. You're going to run into governance issues, but but it starts to build that excitement. I think over time, though, things always tend to find that median, which is that center of excellence. And, and best in class that I've worked with almost always are, are centers of excellence. Hmm. Yeah. And actually, you mentioned uh, technical debt, which is something that I've become more and more familiar with in my organization. As you hear from the data team, you know, we need to update these things. We need to fix these things. They're sort of working, but it's, you know, patched together. But that's not very impressive to show people because you, you in some cases, your product doesn't change at all. It's just the, the sort of data infrastructure that changes. So data scientists are all about pushing that in, in what I've seen. But, you know, in terms of sharing results, like it's not ever going to be glitzy and glamorous. I wonder if you have advice on that and how to think about tech debt, especially if you're well, for both sides, right? The, the data scientists, but also the C-suite or the people who are managing who see no return on investment in a sense, right? They, they obviously see the picture, but you're never going to fix, you're never going to use a new technology and produce the same thing 
and impress investors or something, right? So what, yeah. how, how do you deal with this very difficult problem? That's a hard one. I, I usually keep that behind the scenes. I, whenever I come into an organization, one, one of the things I want to do is, is always have a number in my pocket. We, we've hammered out X number of projects. We've added X dollars to the bottom line. Always have those numbers ready and get it clear that you're not a cost center, you're a profit center for the company. And mm. you, know, you, you make a difference here. You add value to this organization. And it's hard to do that if all that you're doing is, is putting band-aids on things and patchwork. Nobody, again, business leaders, no one's going to be impressed if you've addressed technical debt. So I, I always keep that as you know an edge of the desk project, something people need to contribute to maybe contribute 10, 15% of your time to it. Keep on top of the stuff. It's more like community service than it is exciting <laughs> work, but needs to be done. So, you know, I keep those numbers handy in case, you know, people ask if we're, we're tackling those, but I never run it up the flagpole like I do projects. So it's an unfortunate need, but something that, that needs to be done. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think the old, the older an organization or the the larger, the more you see that, right? It needs to be addressed. Yeah. And can well, and that brings me to my next question, right? That kind of thing, technical debt is one of those things that may be pushed back in quarterly planning because there are more pressing or seemingly more pressing issues. I wonder if you have insights into how to organize sort of workflows, whether that's on a smaller scale or on an annual scale, but where are places that people could really mess up in terms of workflow or really excel? One of the worst things I, I've seen, and this usually comes when uh, data and analytics or BI or data science, whatever, is, is stationed under IT. IT tends to have a very static, deterministic way of, of tackling problems where you have intake through JIRA, you have a well-defined problem, you have a two-week sprint. On Monday, you receive a list of instructions that you're supposed to execute until the following, you know, the end of the sprint cycle. And data science is, is really a creative practice at the end of it. You need to be nimble. You need to ebb and flow with the different things. You need to be able to present and be able to change your approach midstream. And, and if you try at the very beginning to deconstruct it all the way into a list of discrete activities sprinkled across a bunch of automatons who are, are you know, at one station on the assembly line, you, you lose any of that creative flexibility. You, you lose an awful lot of value that you can put into it. So the ones I, I really like are the ones that still have structure around that process. They might have some sort of hybrid, agile, light approach, but they depend as much as possible on, on self-organizing groups of people who are tackling outcomes rather than actions. And if you connect those outcomes together into a project where people have creative freedom to approach it in, in the way that makes sense to them and, and they're operating not as a, a hierarchy or this you know quasi-militaristic organization but it's more like a guild of peers I, I find engagement is higher i find people love their work they're willing to put in more they feel connected to the outcomes it, it leads a lot more naturally into that relationship building so really as much as possible autonomous self-organized groups that see each other as, as peers and not as I'm a senior, you're a junior, but again, the egalitarian guild of, of practitioners working to solve a problem together, I, I find is, is the best approach. 
Yeah. Well, that makes a, it makes a lot of sense when you're when you're thinking about how to deal with the teams. And I wonder if you have insights into what those teams should actually look like. So should there be, or at least in your experience, has it worked well where maybe you have more only technical people or do you have like a mix of technical and non-technical? What kind of like composition of these guilds would be ideal in, in certain cases? I, I'm sure it varies. Yeah, you need that mix for sure. And I, I would always suggest structurally to keep them outside of IT, put them as much as possible with whichever functional domain is, is the most sophisticated, the most able to take advantage of, of what they can offer, uh, whether that's commercial or marketing, or in some cases, you know, finance, or wherever you have influence at that juncture with the business. Because unless you have a chief analytics officer, there's always going to be a non-technical juncture with the business. And, and that person needs to be able to sell on your behalf, to, to support you and, and to you know, really sing your praises at the leadership level. And, and if you have that person and if you are focused on value creation, the rest of it really comes together, I would say. Yeah. What about the big picture? We're thinking when you're teaching strategy, and how to approach situations on a sort of like a, maybe a large scale. Although I guess you could do small scale strategies as well. What are some of the questions that you would ask or that you would encourage others at the organization to ask? And to complicate things a little bit, who should be asking them? So when you think about laying strategic groundwork for projects that you know you, you want to do in your organization, how do you encourage people to think about strategy and who should be doing what? That, that's a... A big question. It's very hard, I, I think, for a company with established leadership to have an objective view of this. They're immersed in their own culture. They're they're immersed in how things have always been done. And analytics, data science is such a dynamic field that unless you have an outsider helping with this, or at least contributing, bringing best practices, it's really hard not to embed the systematic failures of the organization and old heuristics into what you're planning. So I would suggest as much as possible getting support from outsiders, bringing in new blood if possible. At the same time, you, you can't do a lift and shift from another organization because it does need to be contextualized to what you have. So you, you need that partnership between sophisticated functions within the company and outside expertise and people who have seen it done well and done poorly. So with that said, who should be involved? It needs to be right at the executive level. It, it doesn't need to be the CEO involved, but it does need to have high level executive support to be successful. Mm -hmm. if, if you have a, you know, a, a director, a manager, without a significant amount of influence in the organization and you give them the mandate of whatever your day job is, now you also have to take on data science and analytics because we think that this is an important thing for us to have. Without that executive buy-in and, and without a desire at the executive level to shift towards data-driven decision-making, there's only so much they can do and there's only so much impact they can have. It, it's limited by the sphere of influence of, of that person they're reporting to. So uh, that was a large question. I, I, I don't feel like I answered the whole part of it, but I would say, yeah, as much influence as possible and, and partnering with outside people who are able to bring best practices, contextualize to the organization that you're in. 
Yeah, no, I think that's really valuable, right? Because I think it's hard for people to see their own maybe systematic errors or flaws in thinking because they may be ingrained in it. So that's, yeah, that's really valuable advice. Yeah. I wonder also if you have any thoughts on setting up either either long-term projects or teams so that in the future as things change, because you know it's such a rapidly evolving space, that you can be best prepared. So I'm just thinking of a sort of what you mentioned earlier about somebody reads an article and suddenly everyone has to be doing TensorFlow because that seems to be the new thing or you know whatever the newest application is, maybe you hire a bunch of people who know that a year or two later, there's a new thing. So how do you, how do you stay sort of nimble and, and innovative, but also you probably don't want to be rehiring teams every year or something. So do you have advice for thinking strategically long-term or being prepared for future change? What I'd like to do is, I, I always see whenever I'm in a leadership position as, as one of my key roles outside of building relationships is cultivating a project pipeline. And I guard that, I baby it, I, I water it like a garden. That project pipeline is, is what I look at every morning. And, and, and what that is, is, you know, it, it came to me in my time at, at Deloitte where a lot of what you do is sales and you're looking at that sales pipeline where you have you know, some interests, some qualified leads, you try to always be populating that sales pipeline. And, and I try to bring that idea into what I do in organizations. And I, I think of this project pipeline as really similar to a sales funnel. You, you have a huge cloud of potential projects out there. You have latent demand that's sitting inside all of these, these people who have pain points in their day-to-day. -day. They have thoughts, they have, wouldn't it be great if, but they, they just don't have the words. And then you move into intake, you, you've built a relationship with them, they're able to express themselves, and you have a business outcome. And, and you go all the way down until you have scoped out projects, you have a project plan in place, then you have active execution. And as you're going through your day-to-day, -day, you're executing on a few projects, you're, you're scoping out a few, you're getting that hopper, and you're building those relationships and, and really crystallizing those ideas that people have. If you have this well-formed, you should be able to produce a list of, of potential projects years in advance for different functions, for different groups. And if you have this structured well enough, it's pretty easy to figure out how many people am I going to need over the next couple of years? What types of skill sets are going to be in demand? And you have a much longer roadmap that you're looking at that, than if you're trying to deal in what most organizations have, which is that very defensible first in first out peter asked me for this a week ago it's due this week so i'm going to do his thing and then janice asked for this and and that's due a month from now i'm going to do her thing where you're always reactive you're always just doing what you're told but if you have that project pipeline if you've assigned value metrics to each one of these projects then you can very easily go to hr for budget and you can say i'm going to need three more people in the next year because we've got all these projects you can very easily come up with a talent strategy. Most of the projects over the next couple of years are going to be around marketing. It's going to be highly sophisticated, so we're going to need an ML ops engineer on the team. And if you really understand you're, you're always looking at that project pipeline, then you can speak intelligently on, on all the other pieces, what technologies, what type of people, and, and so on. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And it, again, it shows sort of the difference between somebody who may be kind of in over their head and somebody who's managing effectively. And so I always like to ask people, what would differentiate someone who's not well-versed or, or well-equipped to manage a data team and to kind of see it like an oversight 
so not the person actually doing the analysis, but someone managing, what would separate a sort of rock star data science team manager from somebody who needs improvement? What are some of those keys I'm sure you've seen in, over time? The main thing is, is a focus on, on empathy and relationship building with stakeholders. If you have that relationship in place, it, it's easier to communicate. It's easier to understand their motivations, what they actually want. So that's definitely critical. That's the outward facing side. Inward facing within the team, you need people who can establish credibility with their team but aren't there to crack the whip, aren't there to make sure you're getting the most hours, that you've you know, delivered the most story points in the week. You're not there to get into their Python and, and wag the finger at them for not commenting their code appropriately. You're there to support them. You trust their technical abilities. You remove roadblocks. You're, you're an enabler for them, and you care about them personally. You're okay challenging them on their approach. You're okay challenging them because you care about their development, and, and you honestly want the best for the group. If those two sides of it are in place, then I feel like, you know, you've, you've got the foundations of a good leader. Quite often what, what happens, unfortunately, is organizations have very limited advancement options for individual contributors. You can have an analyst, you can have a senior analyst, and then you, you plateau. Maybe you have a specialist, but if you want to advance your career, you need to go manager, director, VP, and there's all of these options above it if you take the manager path. Hmm. So someone who, who genuinely loves data science, they reach that you know, senior analyst pay band and they say, my next step in my career needs to be management. I don't like doing that. I, I don't want to do one-on-ones. I don't want to you know, sit down with HR and do pay band reconciliation and all these tedious managerial things. But that's the next step for me because that's just expected. So I'm going to make that shift. And, you know, it's it's bad on all sides. They're not doing what they love anymore. And the team has inherited somebody as their leader who adds value by critiquing, adds value by challenging, by looking at their Python, by, you know, doing a deep peer review. So it's bad on all counts. And that's a very hard thing for an organization to wrap their heads around. But I think it's critical that people have a lot of levels of, of growth on the individual contributor band, and they don't feel like they're being forced into the management track if it's not something they're passionate about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I de- I've definitely heard that kind of situation. And I think people are becoming more conscious of it. But it's also, as you said, it's hard to address. And it obviously depends on where you are. I wonder yeah. if you have similar insights into, let's say, like a junior developer, or junior data scientist joins a team, wants to impress them, but we've already just said that, you know, don't show all the bells and whistles. We understand you're good at math. Like you don't need to be doing really fancy algorithms right off the bat. And in fact, that might be detrimental. How do you stand out? Like what is a new hire able to do or maybe able to show that would make them stand out as excellent or maybe on, and on the other side, what might they want to avoid? That's a good question. And it, it depends a lot on, on the types of projects and where they fit in the group. I would say one of the things that really impresses me is is when somebody gives me something that I can just pull the trigger on right away. I find quite often when people come in, they will present all their work to, to show I'm smart, I'm capable, and then they'll give me a very terse final answer at the bottom. And, and maybe the outcome was supposed to be a presentation, the outcome was supposed to be speaking notes that our executive sponsor can have to defend themselves. 
So I, I need to work with that. I need to turn that into a presentation. I need to turn that into something else. If I have questions on it, I need to go back to them. If a person is able to understand my needs as, as a leader of an analytics function, they're able to understand what I'm going to do with this after in the business context. And, and they really arm me with a deliverable that is, is fully thought out, fully scoped, and I, I don't need to give it any more thought. I find those type of people just great to work with. And I, I would say one more thing is creativity and, and confidence in, in their approaches. There's so many great outlets for analytics in, in companies. And again, stakeholders quite often can't identify those opportunities. And it's the people that are at the front lines, the ones that are working with their peers within the functions that can see those pain points, that come up with those ideas, that can make those recommendations. If you don't have that type of openness and awareness of, 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 of opportunities, the only other way to do it is, is to get your stakeholders to the point where they can identify those opportunities themselves. So I, I really like working with creative people, the ones that can identify follow-up opportunities, identify upsell, I, I would say, within uh, stakeholders. Nice. So, yeah, that I mean, that's great advice. And I think that that over time is something to aspire towards, both for managers and maybe for new hires on data teams. I wonder if in the next day or two, you could give advice on what might get people started moving in that direction. So if there was something you would advise people listening to this to do based on our conversation, what's something that they could start doing today that would get them moving towards that ultimate goal of being you know, a rock star data analyst or manager or what have you? For an individual contributor, I would say the main thing is to zoom all the way out. What, what is this person actually asking for? What are they going to use it for? What is the business context? How can I provide something to them that gets them what they need and what they're asking for? And then that's an important differentiation. I would say for leaders and aspiring leaders, take time out of your week, you know, designate 10, 15 minutes out of your day that you're going to actively pursue intentional relationship building. That's a hard thing for technically minded people. And actually, when I was doing my MBA, I had an executive coach and, and she challenged me. She said, put 50 bucks aside every month and you have to spend that 50 bucks buying people coffee. And the first month was one of the hardest months of my life. I, I was, you know, sweating bullets trying to find ways to spend this money. But it gets easier and easier with time. And, and eventually, you know, these relationships bear fruit. You, you understand the company better. You understand the people better. You you understand how you can help them. That has been more valuable in my career than probably anything else. So I, I would encourage, especially leaders, but really everybody to be intentional about building relationships. Yeah, that's great advice. I think people can walk away with that already having a goal in mind and will lead to bigger and better things. So yeah, no, I really appreciate that. Jeremy, it's been great picking your brain. I'm sure we could go, I could ask you a bunch more questions, but I, I have to be mindful of your time too. I wonder if people want to follow you or, or maybe even get in touch, where should they check out? Where, where are you present? The main place is LinkedIn. You can find me on there is Jeremy Adamson. And I will, I'll say as well, I love talking about this stuff. I'm, I'm super approachable. So if you want someone to bounce ideas off, always available on there and, and happy to connect with anybody. Excellent. So yeah, I'm sure some of our listeners will take you up on that. Um, I really, I really appreciate your time today, Jeremy. It was a wealth of information. And again, I encourage people to check out Minding the Machines whenever they have a chance. Thank you so much.
Perfect. Thank you so much. It's great talking to you.